This is Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I'm your host, AJ Fraser, and in this series, we explore and expand on what it takes to create meaningful and transformative education. My guest today is Dr. Marie Batiste. Dr. Batiste is a Mi'kmaq educator of the Budladak First Nation, Professor Emerita at the University of Saskatchewan, a 2019 Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Fellow, and an honorary officer of the Order of Canada. Her passion, research, and scholarly work for decolonizing education, protecting Indigenous knowledges, and cognitive justice through balancing diverse knowledge systems and languages have earned her graduate degrees from Harvard and Stanford universities, as well as four honorary degrees from the University of Ottawa, Thompson Rivers University, University of Maine, and St. Mary's University in Halifax. Dr. Batiste's current research, Thinking Historically for Canada's Future, involves a SHRC partnership grant with researchers from 19 universities and 48 partner organizations across Canada, investigating history education across K-12 systems, teacher education, and curricula. Dr. Batiste's scholarly work includes books, chapters and books, journals and reports, notably Decolonizing Education, Nourishing the Learning Spirit, which I'm reading right now, and Protecting Indigenous Knowledge and Heritage, a global challenge, as well as multiple edited book collections. Marie is an elected fellow to the Royal Society of Canada and holds multiple awards, including a National Aboriginal Achievement Award, a University of Saskatchewan Distinguished Researcher Award, a Distinguished Academic Award from the Canadian Association of University Teachers, multiple honoring feathers and blankets from First Nations communities, and honestly, there were just too many accolades to mention in this introduction. She is truly a distinguished intellectual. Dr. Marie Batiste is an academic powerhouse and social activist, and we are very privileged to have her join us at Cape Breton University as Special Advisor to the Vice President, Academic and Provost, and to Unamagi College on the decolonization of our university. I've attended workshops and talks facilitated by Marie in the past, and it has been a great pleasure to speak to her about the work ahead of us and her vision for an equal and just academy that holds ill new values at the core of its operations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. To talk to you about indigenization, decolonization. Um, I said uh, greetings and thank you for bringing me here. Um, my name is Marie Batiste and I'm the special advisor to the vice president academic and uh, provost. Um, and Dean of Unamagi College uh, on the decolonizing of the academy. I am a emeritus professor from the University of Saskatchewan, and I, where I've been teaching at the university for some 28, 29 years, um, largely in the College of Education, uh, teaching teacher candidates um, anti-racist education, and um, First Nations Métis Inuit education. And in my graduate classes, I help my students to develop decolonizing education. So those have been the three major themes of my teaching life. 
What do scholars and education activists mean when we're talking about decolonizing education and decolonizing the academy? And, and does this differ from indigenization? Like every faculty member, professor, you have to take this in the context of a time. And in that time, I want to take it back a little bit to where decolonization began. And decolonization is a movement and processes and outcomes created by the United Nations. Um, at, at, since its inception in 1960, there have been several decades of decolonization around the world, um, correcting global relations that were built on colonial empires. So after World War II, the United Nations advanced the political decolonization of the European empires and provided the necessary foundations for the affected people advancing their own self-determination and their human rights. So when we look at United Nations, there's been many laws and covenants and declarations that have since emerged, all in this nature of um, making sure that the human rights and self-determination of those decolonized now empires are able to uh, deal with the affected people in those places. So we've had at the United Nations covenants dealing with uh, civil, political, social, economic, cultural rights, and various other conventions for the elimination of racism, uh, restoring rights to women, and uh, examining rights of children, and immigrants and workers and so on. So the, the government or the United Nations latest efforts have been in decolonizing, has been in looking at the minimum standards for on the rights, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that was passed in 2007 after like three decades of work. <laughs> this declaration then uh, applies to the 300, 500,000 uh, people, indigenous people around the world um, who've been oppressed by colonial powers and and their decolonized successors, such as in the countries of Canada, India, Africa, and so on. So Canada's decolonization began with their independence in 1982 when they developed their constitution. And in that constitution are the very foundations of self-determination in the sense of the affirmation of Aboriginal treaty rights in section 35.1, and also a, a, the connections, of course, to the rights, uh, freedoms, um, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms for people within the country. And so those particular elements and the section that applies to 52 is that all, uh, all the laws in Canada must align with Aboriginal treaty rights. So it's the supreme law of Canada that <clears throat> the Constitution applies to all of Canada, to all institutions, to all provinces and all peoples around the affirmation of Aboriginal treaty rights as well as these charter rights. So in the, in the sense of what does that mean for institutions such as universities and so on is that universities are by provincial law part of the Canadian group, the, the Canadian nation state, um, but has its responsibilities to these particular elements of Aboriginal treaty rights, charter rights, and so on. And we do that in terms of equity, inclusion, diversity, and now on decolonization. 
So decolonization in the academy might then be understood as uh, something that was written by the <coughs> group that I was part of, which was the Igniting Change, the final report and recommendations of the Federation for the uh, Humanities and Social Sciences, in which we examined equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, and, diver uh, and decolonization in relation to Congress, which is the association that brings all of the associations of you know, uh, of all the scholars and all their associations together every year. And so we're looking at that in terms of how do they decolonize as well as in include EDI in, in, their, in their Congress activities. So we wrote this report, and in this report, uh, which you can find online, by the way, um, is this word decolonization, and we framed it in this way. Decolonization is a necessary and ongoing process of unlearning, uncovering, and transforming legacies of colonialism, as well as utilizing the educational and knowledge systems available to relearn, rebuild, the social, cultural, and linguistic foundations that were lost or eroded through colonialism. Decolonization also requires making space, balancing, generating, and enabling diverse knowledge systems to thrive in the academy, as well as in and through the educational knowledge transmitting places for Indigenous peoples, the formerly colonized or continually colonized nations, peoples, and cultural knowledge systems. And that then frames that it is the both and. It's the both of understanding that decolonization is the, the examining and eliminating the colonial structures uh, that have been the foundation that have created the injustices and the omissions and the marginalization and so on. And the second part of that is the reconstruction. So reconstructing is recognizing that indigenous knowledge systems have been eroded marginalized, but still there, and that need to be recovered, restored, renewed, and regenerated for not just the purposes of Indigenous people, which we would delightfully have as the foundation for our knowledge system, but as Indigenous people are in and want to combine that knowledge system with Western knowledge system, but for their benefit, for their self-determination, as well as to enhance their their human rights, as well as to enhance their Aboriginal and treaty rights. Aside from some of the important institution-wide measures we've taken to indigenize the old new way, which is one of our strategic plan, uh, planning goals, one of the, the five that we have, like ensuring things, uh, in, in enshrining things like land acknowledgements in syllabi, for instance, or um, adding um, indigenous knowledge perspectives uh, history, tradition in curriculum planning. Are there some concrete things that um, you think could help faculty in um, doing the work of decolonization uh, to, towards their curriculum? And I'm, I think I'm even more interested in classroom practice and how they engage with their students. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, if we go back to the, the two broad principles of decolonization and one being the 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 deconstruction and the uncovering and the unlearning and the you know um, that kind of aspect that really has to be a really strong foundation before we begin to do adding 
although I think that, you know, we would like to do it simultaneously, but there, there's complications, and I will speak to a little bit to that. Uh, one is that, you know, first of all, there's still a large contingent, maybe I would <laughs> even venture to guess the majority of people who don't understand what this element of of colonialism is and and how it has affected not only um, indigenous people or marginalized groups of people, whether they're women or um, gender diverse or um, different sexual orientations and other groups of people, but they really don't understand what it's done to their own mind, their own education, their own self. So we become, everyone gets marinated, if I can use those words again, is marinated in Eurocentrism. And Eurocentrism is an ideology, it's a construction, it's socially constructed notions of superiority of certain groups of people or certain groups of knowledge, certain groups of methodologies, even, you know, structures of, of education, a building such as this square, you know, with, with a hierarchy that is the same in every uni university across the world. Um, how did those things come about? So, um, and why is that then thought to be superior over another kind of system? And so taking apart the, the notions of, of superiority and Eurocentric foundations and the complicities with colonialism and Eurocentrism is not a easy task because we 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 get marinated in our English language and forget that there's other languages around the world or that are not official as in in, in Canada and and we also you know begin to think that this is normal and normal then means status quo and this is the way it ought to be and for that takes a long part of deconstructing the the elements of our knowledge system. So when the Federation for the Social Science Humanities set upon uh, you know us to to look at these issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and decolonization, and we began to recognize that all institutions and all knowledge systems and 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 even methodologies are complicit in the hierarchies of power. And that those hierarchies continue to be replicated in systems that go beyond into the economic systems, into corporations and governments and so on. And so understanding what those are, people would just give up their hands and say, oh my God, it's too much. Can't, can't possibly do that. We'll just add and we'll just add some faculty members here and we'll add some courses and we'll, we'll let it go with that. That sounds like a good way to indigenize, eh? Um, and so, you know, th that is not indigenization. That is simply making us feel good by making, bringing in more students or more faculty, making us look diverse, um, making it look like, you know, we're fair, uh, making it look like we're being equitable. And, and yet, in fact, you know, there's still the structures, there's still the, the, opposition, there's still the resistance, there's still the superiority attitudes of, you know, what does indigenous knowledge get to offer anybody? And because all of that has been taught to us, it's it's kind of like how ignorance is a is a real constructed knowledge 
if you look at this thing called agnotology, I found a new word, agnotology, which is the study of ignorance. And the study of ignorance uh, is by the suppression of language, the, you know, the fragmentation of it, the, the hidden aspects of it, and so on. And so part of what I've done in my own study is looking at the ways in which agnotology happened as cognitive imperialism. And so I looked at the ways in which in Mi'kmaq people had been narrated through the curriculum, through education, and in so doing, we looked at and found that, you know, that there were errors in time, eras of time and thematics that went in those places when Mi'kmaq people were feared or when they were you know, distrusted or when they were scorned or they were thought to be disgusting and all these kinds of things that are in the, in the texts and textbooks and taught to children and are in the novels and all kinds of places. And so it really, like Edward Said's work, you know, in looking at Orientalism, it is that the way in which the British understood themselves first came by looking at the other. And in the same way as, you know, when, when settlers arrived, they had no notion of nationhood unto themselves, but they looked to the other. And they began to find in the other the things that, either they liked or revered or, you know, thought they could take or absorb or whatever. And um, taking the land was one of the things that needed to be done. And so to do that, they had to separate the people from those people and thus, you know, create the hatred and the disgust and all those kinds of things so they could move, you know, Mi'kmaq people from the frontage territories of, of the harbor of Sydney and move them up on the rocky lands of Member Two Reserve. And that was done as they narrated Mi'kmaq people as dirty. And narrated, and yet the, the, the doctor of the time said, hey, they're no, no more dirtier than everybody else in, the, in, in, in Sydney. And so, you know, the narration of indigenous people have created the notions of who we are, and that's not who we are. And so we need to recover who we are as well as to recover uh, a different narrative. And in so doing, it is then the recovery <coughs> of indigenous people as well as the understanding of how constructions and ideologies are created in the, in the creation of various notions of nationhood or rights and property and so on. Some of the work of uh, deconstructing these ideologies comes quite naturally to disciplines, usually in the humanities, right? This is the type of work that they're doing. Maybe it's not decolonization work, but certainly challenging ideas and um, frameworks and things within that, that discipline is quite common, right? Philosophy and history and those sorts of things. And I'd like for you to talk about that a little bit too. But um, looking at uh, other disciplines that are often seem to be more rigid in their methodologies or in how they uh, approach their academic tradition, um, ones that are associated with professional designations and classes, for instance, I think sometimes 
um, those are seen as being outside of the pale of what we're talking about when we're talking about decolonization of the academy, right? Um, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on that, um, thinking about things like engineering or mathematics or uh, nursing or any of these ones that are, are um, their basis is maybe more of a hard science. Do those have a, a place in decolonization within academia? Again, context matters and time matters and history matters and the manner in which one knowledge system you know, is generated as superior superior comes about from a, a, a wealth of money and uh, a wealth of experiential knowledge that has been put into a particular knowledge system to get them to this place where they have a, a huge um, cadre of, of, of knowledge and theory and experience and, and, and practical kinds of things. But when we look at that in relation to indigenous knowledge systems, there, you know, scientists in the UNESCO scientists in the end, 1999-ish, wrote this huge report and said, you know, we're coming to the end of our, you know, our particular knowledge system's ability to generate new ideas. Where we're going to get our knowledge now is from indigenous people. And so the recognition that indigenous people do have something, you know, that has been untapped, unknown, um, or either appropriated or, you know, stolen, all those things, um, you know, is, is present. So what we need to do is to think about, okay, our knowledge system as indigenous people indeed need, has been founded upon centuries of experiential knowledge and thinking. It does not have the English counterparts to that in all of its, you know, the ways in which it's put together. So indigenous knowledge systems are really built around an ontology of holism and holism and relational uh, connections to things that, that science does not adhere to, the connections to animals as, as animate and uh, intelligent beings that you can have, and I don't know if the word is intelligence, but at least you can have relational communications with and draw knowledge from them. You can do that with the land, with plants and other things. Um, and also to recognize that we've had a spiritual connection with our ancestors and a spirit world that that also in the world of science does not accept because they would say that's, you know, kind of uh, a legend myth and, and so on, other kinds of things. Um, so though there are different kinds of foundationals, if I would call ontological foundations, the way of being and thinking are different in these things. Um, and so we, we really, when we're, we're working with scientists and so on, we, we recognize the limitations of their ontology <laughs> and, and how they approach things and recognize that the very ways in which you observe and you, you know, experience and so on are the very things that indigenous people have done also over time and come to know animals and plants and everything else in the same way, kind, kind of way. 
And so they, they share, you know, equally different kinds of information. And we are beginning to find that as um, scientists and other um, groups begin to work with indigenous people, they're finding a new connection to another knowledge system and are beginning to, you know, grow into it a little bit, but at the same time, it's still very separate. So there's places around the world where sciences are making inroads with indigenous knowledge systems and, and sharing them. But again, you know, when we think about this sharing business, there's different notions of, of how we should share. Um, Typically, science wants to take and bring that knowledge into their way of thinking, publish it somewhere, um, and, um, and make their innovations from it. Whereas indigenous people want to make, you know, have that kind of information and knowledge systems of, the, of Western knowledge systems to bring into theirs to advance their self-determination, to advance their... Uh, ways of, of living and being and in a in a society where everything is shared and and where they can grow. So self-determination and human rights and so on are foundational to indigenous people's knowledge systems, but not so in a capitalistic consumer kind of knowledge for ourselves for you know for prosperity and all these other things. So there's different kinds of ways of doing that and I think we, you know, we have found that indigenous knowledge systems can interact with almost any kind of theoretical, you know, science or otherwise uh, practical sciences and technologies and so on. Um, and similarly, we could we could benefit by having those, but they are different and they have different purposes. So I think that what we need to do is to really rethink you know, as to how uh, sciences are taking up indigenous knowledge systems, that they also have a way of giving back. So it isn't just the one-way street out, but rather a give back and a reciprocal relationship and built around the ontologies of indigenous peoples. I would imagine, too, and this was something you had said uh, before that, because you were talking about the... Um, uh, the traditional Eurocentric hierarchical systems, that there's an opportunity for faculty, for instructors teaching in um, these types of disciplines that I'm talking about, or actually any discipline, to not only rethink some of the content and how they're framing content as they're sharing it, but also to be um, discussing those hierarchical systems within their profession or within their academic tradition. And I would imagine that that's all part of uh, decolonizing for the students, right? The students now emerging out of their discipline, their degree, and they have a better understanding of the landscape that's ahead of them um, and how they might be able to navigate it with a decolonial lens. Right. And the thing is that, you know, that we are still in a period of decolonization around the world. So we have a lot of students who are coming from places that are in the process of decolonization but also need to recognize that their own systems, um, their own indigenous knowledge systems, their own, uh, their own knowledge systems within their own countries have value. And it isn't just to bring in the West and bring in, you know, the, 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 the foundations of this, what is called an educated systems in, that there are knowledges that are in what we call endogenous, meaning that they come from within. 
and they become from within are those people like in, in Bolivia, for example, where the the knowledge systems of in the indigenous people on the land is the knowledge system that is going to help those people survive on that land and then those particular territories, you know, and but also on a, on a principle of of for, of good for all and and feeling good about what they're doing. I am curious, you know, mo- many faculty in principle, um, they would like to do the uh, work of decolonizing their curriculum and their teaching practices, but they often inherit decades and centuries of academic tradition that acts as a foundation um, for the exploration that they might be doing around contemporary issues, right? Let's say they're doing something that's very, very relevant today, but you need decades, centuries of backstory and academic literature and all of that in, in order to engage fully with the material today. So how can faculty um, whose disciplines have their origins in Eurocentric modes of inquiry explore alternative perspectives um, or that decolonizing lens we've been talking about and still ensure that their students have that literacy that they need, that background to fully engage with and understand uh, the discipline or the profession that they're going to go on? Well, wonderful thing about academia is there's a lot of choice. You know, there's there are some prescriptions, and prescriptions are partly, you know, those required required topics, required readings, required skills that, you know, people need to have as they move through the institution. Um, but there's also other, another choice of electives. There's a lot of choice of, you know, looking at other ways of doing things. They're called innovations and best practices or wise practices and all kinds of things. So, you know, as I think that of when I think about what faculty are doing and I, and, and the reason why I, I took this particular position was that I said, I'm not necessarily interested in working on the student services end of things because I think that they have covered that already well and they know what kinds of things would support students. And I wasn't interested in in the money grabbing end of things of going out and find proposals and money to bring to here to say, here's some money, go do some innovative, wonderful things. Nor was I interested in doing being a senior administrator to, you know, to monitor how people were going to achieve those kinds of goals that they had set. But what I really wanted to do was to work with faculty at this university so that I could help engage them because I've been a faculty member for some 28 years myself. So I and then beyond that before that. So I know. You know, I've lived through some of the processes that I found particularly difficult. Um, the collective agreement is a is a difficult place, um, and it is difficult because Eurocentric knowledge systems define how people will be assessed as they go through the the system, and though that Eurocentric frameworks of you know merit and also of uh, promotion and tenure and renewals and those sort of things are built around certain kinds of concepts of what is good, what is better, and what is best. 
And all of that has not been framed in any way by Indigenous people or by Indigenous concepts or ideas or ways of doing things. So what counts as knowledge and what doesn't count as knowledge, what counts as service, what counts as research, what counts as uh, teaching, what counts as methods for teaching are all framed in a very narrow construct. And so what I wanted to do was to help people to understand that if you're bringing in Indigenous scholars to this university, then it means then that you are also responsible for ensuring that the way in which their knowledge system is, is how they should be you know, evaluated, assessed, and merited, and so on. Uh, but at the moment, we don't have that. And part of that is because there's not enough Indigenous faculty members to help define that for the collective agreements or for the university or for, you know, anybody here. So in a place like University of Saskatchewan, when we have 50, more than 52 Indigenous scholars as the foundation of the University of Saskatchewan, who are faculty members all the way up through professors and so on, they are defining and deciding how to assess these particular things and have begun the process of decolonizing the collective agreements, decolonizing um, promotion tenure standards. So those are the kinds of things that can happen and needs to happen here. But similarly, you know, bringing in indigenous scholars means that you know you need you they need to be recognized for what the knowledge they bring in not just tick the box. That's the other thing we're dealing right now with, with this notion that there are some indigenous people who are claiming indigenous identities, but are not indigenous, or might have some distant indigenous ancestor, but you know are taking up space of indigenous people who, you know, maybe by equity, by you know the the notions of you know helping out this particular group of people, you know they take those positions and they could easily get, you know, in through another way. So, you know, those kinds of things then says that, you know, Indigenous uh, scholars come in with a different, I, you know, a different set of knowledges and different responsibilities to those knowledges. Unlike the, in a Eurocentric framework, your responsibility of holding your knowledge is to give to others and, you know, pass it on and, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas the um, in indigenous knowledge traditions, when indigenous people have this knowledge, they have a responsibility to keep that knowledge system going. So going to learning about the powwows, learning their songs, learning the, you know, teaching their own children how to do powwow, teaching them, you know, how to make their own regalia, teaching them the teachings of, you know, their ancestors and so on, is, the, is their own research, is their own livelihood, it's also creating to the sustainability of indigenous knowledge traditions. But in the university system, unless you do a research project on it, unless you write a book about it, then it doesn't count. You know, if you get an eagle feather or a blanket, that doesn't count. But if I go out and get an honorary doctorate degree, that counts. If I, you know, or an award from you know, some association. If I go into my community and I speak my language and I share, you know, a, a you know stories with them, that doesn't count. But I go to a conference and I spend fifteen minutes 
doing a presentation on something I learned that my students gave me because I got graduate students that pretty much wrote the thing, then I, that counts. So there's a whole bunch of things about what doesn't count and what counts. And we need to really rethink that because that's part of the, you know, those standards that we begin to accept that, that this is the way it is here. And so as we begin to bring in indigenous knowledges and indigenous scholars and, and indigenize this academy after we take away the colonial structures that, you know, have impeded the progress of, of different groups of people, then, you know, we need to really begin to change the policies and foundations and rules that have grounded this particular institution across associations. That is like whether you're in humanities or social sciences or the sciences, and also whether how you do that in terms of the, the progression of these scholars through the university. So I, I really believe that that's a very important foundation for what faculty can do in terms of this conscientization. And I use conscientization as a way of saying, this is when after you learn something, there, it, you can't unlearn it. <laughs> you know, you can't go back. So sometimes conscientization happens when, um, you know, like in our community, you know, they may, you know, there's a, they, 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 people, you know, may go to a, um, a blockade because of a uh, issue with regard to their treaty rights have been abridged. And they go there and they say, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm kind of here. I'm, I'm just a body. But in the course of learning about what's going on, they become aware of what the situation was and is and the injustices. And when they get that, they become aware of something that they didn't have when they stood on that blockade or in that, in that particular place and time. And then there's no going back. And then all these different groups of people who are fighting for rights, you know, for injustices and, and trying to ameliorate or correct the injustice of the past, they begin to realize how collectively that has been an issue around the world. It's what led me in my own education to come to this awareness of cultural imperialism and then later of cognitive imperialism. And as I did that, I said, wow, that's amazing. And all of a sudden, then everybody started picking up on those words in my books and so on and saying, wow, I, I never knew. And so taking people to that level where they become aware of the injustices of the past and the present and are actually can begin to be a voice for and an advocate for change is where I want to take not just students, but faculty and and the institutions as well. So that leads to our next question. What kind of resources are available at CBU for faculty to engage in this work? And I don't just mean books at the library. What are some things, some people, roles, what position, how how can you also be a resource to faculty? And, and sorry, and not just at CBU, but CBU and, and more broadly. Yeah. Um, I think that the resources aren't, aren't large. <laughs> um, people haven't been working in this particular area so that, you know, what I'm talking about and what I'm doing and what I'm advocating for 
are feeling like on the on the you know the new edge of things. Um, some places like University of Saskatchewan, where there's you know out of the nineteen thousand students, we've got you know probably three thousand Indigenous students going to university. Uh, we have you know over fifty faculty members and growing. Uh, we have units like um, the arts and sciences that said, you know, we're going to add 11 more Indigenous faculty members in the next 10 years, you know, and sooner if we can get it. So there's an explosion of, of people saying we want to, we want, we want to increase the numbers. Um, but beyond the numbers, I think there's much more that needs to be done on these two, the decolonization lens of things, not just the additive lens, not just the ad program, ad courses, and ad reconciliation courses for all the students across campuses and so on, although those are good. That's certainly, you know, not the end game. Um, and so, you know, people like Stephen Augustine is a treasure. He is basically, you know, one of the the, the the treasures of knowledge keepers, you know, and now elders in our community. And we have many who are like that, you know, Albert Marshall, um, and, you know, and many, many, many others I could name. But it is that we need to find a way to harness some of that energy and to, to encourage and create ways in which we can engage Indigenous uh, elders and scholars and teachers and and really rebuild a relationship so that we will have a stronger foundation for saying what we are doing here, we need your help. It isn't it isn't about paying them the money to come, but it's really about getting them committed to understanding that we are making a change here. And that that change is going to be significant for all the students here at this university. Um, and so when they do that, then everybody then, you know, comes together for that. But at the moment, it feels a little fragmented. It feels like we have uh, some some interest in, you know, understanding what the only way is, but not a lot. It's a lot of, of narrative. It's a lot of rhetoric and not a lot of actual activities that are going on the ground. And so, you know, I'm here to begin to work with faculty members to say, I know what you went through, going through, and I've been there, you know, because I didn't come out of, you know, um, of the university with the, with the knowledge that I have now. I have built that on my own and with my communities and with, you know, uh, Indigenous knowledge holders. Um, and similarly, you know, others can find their way and pathway, as there are some here at the university that are just well on their way and, and have already gotten the conscientization, if I could use that word again, um, and are there and are ready to take on, you know, the next major steps, whatever, wherever they go. So I would want to support them with, you know, myself and the, and the, the few resources and books and information that I have. There are some things online. There's a wonderful uh, website called Be a Connector. Be a con be be a connect with an R instead of an OR, but be a connector dot com. 
.com, I think, or .ca. Anyway, it's a it, in the in, at the university. Not it's in in the prairies. They built this website full of videos and books and interviews and just a wealth of material. And so there are pockets of places like you know the TRC Commission and other places that have their own websites that you know have great wealth of information in them as well as just trying to bring them together and and give you know the the tools that they might be able to use to start off doing their own work toward conscientious citation. Have you found COVID to have much of an impact on this decolonization work or has it you know interrupted any momentum we might have had before? At the beginning of this time that we call the COVID era, um, many of us didn't have the skills for, you know, getting on Zoom. I, I had no idea, you know, how to Zoom, how to, you know, WebEx or, you know, uh, Teams and all these kinds of things. Um, but now I feel like people, including young elders in our community, are now at least aware of this and are recognize the potential it provides when you don't have to leave home, when you can actually enter into a conversation with other people and see them on a screen, which isn't the greatest way, but nonetheless, it kept us from being totally isolated. And I think it really then made it possible to say that when, you know, like today, you know, I'm going to a, you know, listen to Stephen Augustine, who's got three o'clock going to be, you know, doing a presentation online um, and who is, you know, here. And there's two others that are one in PEI and the other is in, in Ottawa. And so, you know, I get to go to that. And then tonight I'm going to another uh, conference uh, where it, at uh, at the University of, of um I think it's a University of New Brunswick. So I've got all these things lined up for today, and it's all in line. And so I know that while that kind of, you know, getting started with this pre prevented us from doing a lot of things, it's made the opportunities greater for us as well. And so I see that the COVID, that the whole element of utilizing this kind of technology that has bloomed and blossomed and growing has made it possible for people to connect in ways they never did. And so it is, it is, it's a future that now says that everyone can be included in conversations. We don't need to leave out people any longer. We can have conversations with people. But getting getting the relational elements, continuing to develop relations are really the core of it. And you're quite right that we need to be building relationship face-to-face -face and, and, and ongoing relationships, not just for the purpose of one thing or the other, but to keep those relationships going and, and sharing ideas back and forth, reciprocity and so on, understanding protocols that go with Indigenous peoples, um, gathering of knowledge with them. That kind of thing is continuing to need to be done. But I like, I like what's happening, actually. So in your book, Decolonizing Education, and I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit, um, but I was wondering if I could get a definition on it. Um, decolonizing Education, uh, Nourishing Learning Spirit, you write about 
this indigenous renaissance. And I've heard it indigenous renaissance, um, certainly as it relates to the arts, right? Jeremy Dutcher, I think, uh, had um, talked about this uh, when he was getting receiving his Juno, right? And this was a big thing for all indigenous artists that I'm, I, I follow and uh, their careers. So indigenous renaissance in scholarship, yeah. right? And um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that collaborative conscientization I'm pronouncing it correctly. Well, you know, I, I would say the the indigenous renaissance really had its its real birth back with the American Indian movement, civil rights, the women's movement, the ethnic um, ethnic uh, studies development. Um, it was it has been kind of like a the the slow growth of academics involving indigenous people, but that as they develop this knowledge, like for me, it was like the light bulb all of a sudden came on, that I was, I went through Eurocentric education in the dark because it was nothing about me, it was nothing about my people, nothing that I wanted to, to know about them because of the way in which we had been narrated and treated in all of those particular kinds of places. So when, when we as an indigenous people came to, you know, academia and got through to the places where we got to a doctorate degree, for example. So my doctorate degree I did at Stanford University had my big aha moment when I decided to do a, a study on my own people's literacy development. How did they develop literacy? And what I found out was that we've always had multiple forms of literacies. Uh, they were not with Roman orthography script, however. They were literacies that were oral. They were literacies that were uh, mnemonic and symbolic and, and um, iconic. Um, and not necessarily where they handwritten, but we did have that. We had four different orthographies that had been introduced to us as, a, you know, as in as Mi'kmaq people. But they diffused by different kinds of ways, with mostly missionaries trying to push, you know, prayers and uh, the things on us, or saying to us, "You shouldn't learn that because, you know." You, you that you will be falsely taken down to the the wrong path by learning that writing system, and so um, indigenous peoples' knowledges, you know, have been in the dark. And so when we as indigenous scholars came to the first opening of the door of our own by studying it with our people, with our elders, with our communities, with my mom, um, and so on. I came to this like aha moment of the, the the darkness all of a sudden becoming light and that there was so much to learn and so much to know and so much to gather. And then I spent then the rest of my life doing that. <laughs> um, and as a result of that, it has helped to add to this conscientization. It has also helped to understand injustice, oppression, and it has helped me to understand the where those those um, points of privilege have been that created those oppressions and began to tackle them one by one. And so this renaissance then has been indigenous people around the world, you know, saying in, it is from our teachings 
that we come to awareness of ourselves. It's our, through our languages that we come to the tools of this knowledge system. It is through understanding our own histories and our own kinds of ways of perspectives that we can begin to understand who we are as people and where we came from and what our relationships are and what our responsibilities are. And in all of that, it means that this indigenous renaissance is a growing phenomenon around the world. It is what's lighting um, the passions of many. Before we finish up, I'm wondering if there's any, if you have any other thoughts, things that you'd like to, some, something you'd like to leave the listenership with. I think that, you know, there's always been, you know, people who with great um, interest in Indigenous people, and and they've been kind and generous in 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 many ways. But I think that beyond being kind and generous, we need to begin to really understand the the oppression that has been very deeply created by a system that we continue to hold on to. And until we begin to deconstruct what that system has been for indigenous people and how it continues to be that for other groups of people who have been called different, then we actually are perpetuating a system that's gonna create the power over and the wars of the future that we're trying to avert today. The very fact that we are, you know, at a point where Russia is, as an empire, wants to create its empire by its power overing all of those people, is creating the death and destruction of those many, many, many wonderful people. And we need to avoid those things. We need to see our world as a more of a holism in which we can relate with each other and not have to create the empires and the power overs, and that we can actually live with diversity. Marie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was wonderful to get to hear your perspective, experience, and wisdom as it relates to the subject. And I'm really excited to see the kind of change you're bringing about in this institution and this island, and I hope uh, we get to talk again soon in the future. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I want to thank our guest, Marie, for offering her leadership and guidance. Thanks to the Center for Teaching and Learning team, Nicole, Debbie, Laura, Rod, and most especially to my go-to man on campus, Terry McDonald. If you have a story or ideas for future episodes, reach out to us at ctl at cbu.ca. And let us know what you'd like to hear. I'm AJ Fraser. Stay safe and talk soon.